0: Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and I'm so glad you're here with me and soon-to-be doctor, Holly Hudley.
1: That has to be conferred upon me.
0: Yeah, I confer it. Thanks. (laughs) So we're in the afterglow of Michael Moorwood's webinar.
1: Yeah, that was lovely. I thought I just... He was like almost dancing on screen. Did you notice that? He was so animated.
0: Well, I was, uh, I w- I was grateful that it went as well. I've had tons of positive feedback. Yeah. People actually liked the fact that they were face to face with him yeah. for that period of time yeah. and not separated by you know, this. Yeah. I was initially very disappointed that we weren't gonna have him in person yeah. But that 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 went really <clears throat> quite well, and we had people from all over the United States. I was stunned yeah. by where people were from.
1: Yeah, I wish we had a, li- a printout of that, I and mean, we can go back and look. But you know, Phoenix, um, the West Coast, Dallas, uh, the Carolinas, Arkansas, Arkansas. I mean, thank God Arkansas was represented. I'm just saying. <laughs> Australia.
0: <laughs> we had people from Australia. Yeah. Yeah. When we were going to have Michael in person, uh, he had sent us a box of his latest book. His latest book is called Prayers for Progressive Christians. And um, we sold some of them in preparation for his being here. But of course, the pandemic hit. He didn't come. So we have a box of books of his. So right before we um, went on today, I went to my office and checked the box. And we have about 25 of these left. Some of them have already been spoken for. And the deal that I am making to people is that if you will send me your name and a mailing address in a couple of weeks, either when we've sold them all or when we've gotten tired of holding the book up, um we'll start sending them out yeah. and in the in the envelope that in which you will get the book there will be a little return envelope with instructions of how to remit 20 bucks for this book mm-hmm. and i want to thank you for serving on the what did you do you were the monitor
1: i was the q a operator
0: the q a operator yes <laughs> and um of course, Tim Leatherwood, Richard Wingfield, who was our guru getting us started, John Watson, who served as our floor person, um, William Budge, uh, we just had um, Olivia Watson. We just had a great team put together to do this. It's first first time ever that we've done this. Now, in about a month, we're going to have another webinar, this one with Jackie Lewis. She will be here with us all day on a Saturday, October the Seventeenth. Seventeenth. Yep. And then she will be the content of Ordinary Life on the 18th. The registration button for that webinar will be active this today. Af- yeah. today.
1: Yeah, it'll go live today. We just got the link for the webinar. Similar kind of deal as the Michael Moore would where you Click on the link, you register, you'll get um, a webinar link that you need to hold on to and put in your calendar.
0: And as I was coming in today, uh, Tim told me that the webinar that we did with Michael Morwood is already up ready for replay. So if you didn't get to attend the webinar this past Thursday night, and or if you simply want to go back and re-listen to it, If you go to the Ordinary Life webpage, go to the live stream option on the webpage, at the bottom, there is a link that you can click on to watch the webinar again.
1: Along with the Jackie Lewis registration, there'll also be an announcement with just a button to go straight to it at the top of our our landing page, so. We'll, we'll we'll catch
0: up. <laughs> so we, we curated curated a lot of questions that night that we didn't have time to get to. Hopefully Holly and I can get to them as time passes. Of course we won't answer them as Moorwood would have, but we will we will do our best. Um, we really are living in between the no longer and the not yet. This time of pandemic keeps stretching out.
1: Yeah, I just had a conversation with Joe outside, one of the security guards, just just lamenting how much we're missing community and connection and just a simple touch.
0: I'll speak to that at the end of our time today, coincidentally, Mm -hmm. but I I really miss it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I miss what we had and lightheartedness and things. We, we're doing everything we can to stay in contact and connect. And one of the ways we do that is by our podcast.
1: Yes. In between is our podcast and you can catch it on. It usually comes out on Thursday mornings and um, it's in our podcast feed the same way that you get Sunday lectures when you've missed them or through our website under ways to connect. So it's it's all in the same stream and we've been doing it for 16 weeks already. I mean that that feels like oh, gosh. Anyways, you handing me I'm the plate. I'm passing the plate. Okay, pass the plate. <laughs> Here you go. That's it. Oh, I don't need it.
0: <laughs> but you could t- tell people how they could contribute.
1: There is a way to continue contributing to ordinary life. Funds that you you contribute go to Houston area and some international nonprofits that are serving the um, poor and underserved and vulnerable populations in in around Houston. Um, there is a donate button on our website. It takes you to a form in the memo. You just need to type ordinary life. And those go to good uses and are connected often to relevant nonprofits that people in our class are involved in. So thanks for your consideration and contribution.
0: By the way, I also wanna thank John and Kimberly Watson who started the Curly Endowment that makes it possible for us to have people like Michael morwood and Jackie Lewis. And after the event on Thursday night, John came to me and said, I think we ought to ramp it up. I think we ought to have more people this way. So um, since we have somebody scheduled in almost a month, it'll probably be after that, uh, maybe after the first of the year. But we're going to start reaching out to other people to see um, who we can have. At any rate, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are Welcome here. I miss people saying that in unison. Hmm. So, as you know, unless you're living under a rock, or unless you're, and if you are, I'd love to have that rock. <laughs>
1: Can we come? With I would you? love that
0: rock <laughs> yes. for a few just days, a <laughs> just to get out and get out. You know? Yeah. Um, Holly and I, Holly, and has been teaching with me since this time, and we're trying to find our way through not only the pandemic, but the the unrest that has been caused in this country by the peeling back of systemic racism and the economic disparity that that brings and the disparity in healthcare and a variety of other things. And so we've just been feeling our way along like everybody else. We spent two months going through the teachings of Buddhism on the Eightfold Path and now we have begun working our way through Three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, and right now we're in the first few verses of that body of material called the Beatitudes. And as a spiritual teacher, as a spiritual director, I want to say a couple of things just up front about what we're going through. The path forward into, through, and getting on the other side of all that I just talked about is um, both very simple. I didn't say it was easy, but it's very simple and it's deadly. It's deadly in the sense that the ego fears what moving through this time in a spiritual sense is all about. It's simple in the fact that all we have to do is take 100% 100 percent responsibility for who we are and what we do and holding ourselves and each other accountable for the ways that we have been and are being complicit in the way things are none of us has clean hands and it also means the developing the capacity and the willingness to see what is and a willingness to be with this reality. I've said over and over and over that to me this is the essence and content of spiritual practice. But it's deadly in that doing this means that we have to relinquish some of what we think is absolutely most dear to us. The second step forward and through is to capture a vision And develop a faith in our true identity. And I think I can say what that identity is. As a matter of fact, that's what this entire time today in one way or another is about. What we want this time to be about today is our getting a clear picture of who we are, of who you are, and making or renewing a vow to live that identity. Now, what is that identity? It's this, we are who we are in God, no more, no less. And I really prefer the, the really beautiful way that Holly refers to this. Uh, she did it two weeks ago and last week, and I, I think it's in her notes for today as well. We are embedded in sacred mystery. And at the same time, sacred mystery is embedded in us. This is a a very personalized way to think about our spiritual work and about our own identity. I think that almost every difficulty we have in our lives comes because we lose sight of this identity. And we try either to be more or less than who we truly are. Now, what gives us the opportunity to speak to this today is The beatitude that we are up to for today, the way that you are usually uh, familiar with it is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think more jokes have probably been made about this verse in the (laughs) Bible than any other. The meek shall inherit the earth because who else would want it? Mm. And if they get it, will they stay meek? And I mean, it just goes on and on. So, uh, as as you may also likely know, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates scripture. And this is the way he has this beatitude. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. So, Holly and I are using these teachings to make our way through uh, this time And um, we're coming to terms, I think, with some of the true shadow aspects of ourselves and of our culture. And that's not always fun, but
2: Mm
1: -hmm. it's our work. The more familiar, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, has such an interesting connotation. Uh, So many of us have sort of a negative idea about what it means to be meek. So there's two things, I think, to unpack here. One is, what does it mean to be meek in the time of Jesus? Um, put it in the context of when a couple of weeks ago, um, that 85% of the population, I demonstrated with the pyramid, that didn't own a thing. That, that Those are the meek. They worked the land, but they did not possess it. And what Jesus seems to have understood, what many indigenous people and religions understand, is that those kind of those who had a more compact cosmology and were in constant communication with the land and with the natural world is that it can't be possessed. He's saying to the meek that by default, you already have access to such teaching. So right off the bat, we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that even though we might have a deed to our little plot of land or to several plots of land, that we can't take it with us. It's not going to follow us from this planet. We are stewards of that land, but we can never possess it. In that sense, we're all meek. We just don't know it. This illusion that we can possess land has, of course, led to much violence, oppression, wrongdoing, war. Think of how America was colonized through the possession of land that really wasn't anyone's to begin with, Then, in an attempt to get Native Americans to participate in these new rules of ownership, colonizers told them they could become citizens of their new America by buying back plots of individual land, and that would separate them from the tribe. This new world order became about an illusion of ownership. Native Americans had to give up something essential to their identity, to their worldview of non-ownership, of meekness. That the land was not theirs in order to even have a shot at participating in these new world, in this new world order. They forsook their embeddedness in the natural world, their embeddedness in the land for individualism, in some ways for survival.
0: You know, I mentioned several times that um, a number of biblical scholars say that the Beatitudes are like a ladder. And when we were talking about the Eightfold Path, we said that it was more like a spiral staircase that you went up and down at the same time. Uh, the, the, bad, the Beatitudes seem more sequential than that. Like you do, you do build on them. Um, but I'm not sure we go up. I think we go down. Mm. I think that spiritual work is all about relinquishing and letting go. And it's about a path of descent rather than ascent.
1: Mm. And by descending, we ascend. Yeah. So this
0: kind of... It, that's another paradox. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. In there. But we started out, you remember, with blessed are they who have nothing, blessed are the poor. And then we move to blessed are those who can grieve the fact that they can hang on to nothing. And now we come to deal with the right relationship to the earth and who we are who dwell upon the earth. And we intend to talk about both of those in this time today. So as Holly said, who owns the earth? Uh, I want to build on it by reading you a quote from St. Augustine. He warned, you who wish to possess the earth now, take care. If you are meek, you will possess it. If ruthless, it will possess you. So working to possess a chunk of earth now is to walk on a path of deception over and over in history. We have been shown that the possessive end up being possessed. It's almost impossible to avoid that. You know people whose possessions possess them. I cannot tell you how many times over the years I have seen after the death of a parent, usually the last in a generation... the the surviving generation nearly come to blows over an inheritance that they thought was theirs, and they end up in the process of fighting about it, disinheriting themselves. John Dominic Crossan, Jesus Scholar, was the first one, I think, I heard describe Jesus' teachings as what the world would look like if God ran the show In such a world, God owns everything, and we are stewards of that. Now, in our worldview of capitalism, we're taught to live by the values of this worldview that forms the bottom line. And in the process, we can easily lose sight of that which truly matters. After the death of a very wealthy man, someone asked, I wonder how much he left? Hmm. And someone responded, he left it all. We are who we are in God, no more and no less.
1: Yeah. I think to know how we view God, as you say, you know, we are who we are in God, no more, no less. To know how we view that, how we view others, has everything to do with, with how we view ourselves. Right. I believe you said that before. Right. And, you know, I'm not so sure which came first. If we... Um, had a view of God and then ourselves, or a view of ourselves and then we create our view of God. I I sort of think it exists in this bi-directional flow, a permeable membrane, I think, if you will, between the two, where both identities, both concepts are fueling one another. And not everybody has a concept of God, but I think what, what I mean when I talk about this concept of God is something outside of the self. What does it mean to have a concept of the self as well as a concept of something outside of the self? The second thing to understand about the beatitude, um, as Peterson translated it, as being content with just who you are. In some regard, he is saying, we have to know something about ourselves as individuals in order to sort of sense a greater feeling of belonging. This is part of growing up, of individuating. We have to learn to stand solidly on our own two feet in our own identity in order to also know our unique place in the world, and our embedded place in the world. So we have to know ourselves to know our embeddedness. There are dozens of developmental models that are used in psychology. The vast majority of them were created by white males of European descent. So that in itself is a limiting view of development. Um, that's changing as psychology evolves and is more inclusive and dynamic and, and multicultural, but we have Um, Still, we still base most of our psychological learning, and both of us have gone through psychology education. We have Eric Erickson's model of social development.
0: That was the first one I learned.
1: Well, me too, yeah. Jean Piaget's model of cognitive development. That was the second one I learned. Lawrence Kohlberg's model of moral development. Sigmund Freud's model of psychosocial or psychological development. John Balby's work on attachment. Uh, Ken Wilbur's recent model on spiral dynamics. All of these are useful in trying to understand the developing sense in the con, or the developing self in the context of the environment. They are important theories. We shouldn't dismiss them. But my issue with many of them is that the, they hyper-focus on the individual. Yes, the environment influences the individual and vice versa, but we're missing a kind of fully fleshed out theory that points towards individual and cosmic development, if you will. All the folks involved in the Universe Story Project, um, this is something that's happening at the Yale Divinity School, or in in conjunction with the Yale Divinity School, as well as my institution, the California School of Integral Studies. Um, Mary Evelyn Tucker, Brian Swim, John Grimm, all inspired by the work of Thomas Berry. These guys are trying to do just this, to place the human in this broad swath of time, into a shared story of existence while not losing sight of the particular gift that each of us bring. To find ourselves balanced between a very specific story and a cosmic story is in itself an act of creativity and faith. To have faith that we emerge from something 14 billion years old, right? We can't conceive of that. So that requires a kind of a quantum leap of imagination. Mm -hmm. This image that you're about to talk about, I won't give it away just yet, (laughs) seems to flow in three directions. And as after Bill talks about it, I'll talk about another theory of development that hopefully begins to place us in a larger and greater sense of belonging to the whole cosmos.
0: Well, I'm going to do this, but I want you to jump in whenever you want to to amplify on this. Um, I thought, that this was on our website.
1: The Cosmic Egg? Mm-hmm. Oh, I just gave it away. <laughs> okay. It is actually. I did, it's I under resources, I think. I looked,
0: I couldn't huh. find it. I'll
1: check again, okay.
0: Because if not, I might put the handout up there if I can find that. Uh-huh, that I yeah. 15 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, I introduced this into ordinary life. 15 years ago. Yeah. I was just 12 at the time.
1: You know I was probably six.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So I want you to know that this work that you see on the screen belongs to Richard Rohr. I th- I don't know what book it's in. Is it in? Oh the...
1: gosh, that's a good question. I can't remember where I. I know I first heard it in here, and then I have since read it in his work, but I can't remember which book.
0: So the words you're about to hear are ours, mine, and Holly's, but this diagram belongs to Richard Rohr, and I think it's a. a brilliant conceptualization it's a i think now that i think about it it's kind of a simplified way to understand spiral dynamics
1: yeah i think there's a relationship you know we have to think about theories of development are always iterations of something that came before it right The, the truth is if i may speak the truth that we're not going to come up with something that isn't already true we're just trying to lean into greater understandings of something that's already true.
0: Well, I know that Roar is a huge fan of Ken Wilber's, mm. and I know that Roar quotes Ken Wilber all the time, uh, in uh, using Wilber's f- phrase of include and transcend, transcend and include, and that's what this model does. Mm-hmm. There are three models of um, knowing or experiencing that, that Roar talks about. And they are on the first level, my story. And then on the second level, our story. And then on the third level, the story. Uh, and they all are all contained in one egg, which Roar refers to as the cosmic egg. Now, we've talked in here a lot about the importance of both not being ruled by either the ego or our tribe. And people are not going to move away from the ego. They're not going to move away from tribal realities unless they trust, as Holly just said, have faith in that there's a larger story to move in, that there's a larger identity to both embrace and be embraced by at, at the same time. I think that the only function of religion is to lead us through ritual and education and communal activities into this larger story. Um, If I define our identity as who we are in God, no more, no less, Uh, and since the word God is so problematic, let's do call it sacred mystery for just the moment. If your religion isn't, or your religious practice isn't helping you both to experience this identity and express this identity, then I wonder the value of your religion or your religious practice. If one's religion is consumed with being right or righteous, proving doctrinal points that end up killing people in one way or another, that is separating us from each other, then I can confidently say it is not the religion of Jesus. The religion of Jesus is about love. And love is about recognizing yourself in the other. There's an old maxim in psychology you're gonna allow somebody to love you only to the degree that you love and know yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're only going to know and love yourself only to the degree that you allow someone else to love you. There is again that paradox, that, that I, I thou conundrum mm-hmm. about how we find our meaning in the middle of that work. Um, this is not an easy task, but it is the great need of our time. Um, the work of compassion shows us this. In her book, a, in a high spiritual season, Joan Chittister has a wonderful spiritual practice that works well with cosmological evolution and evolution of cosmology. And it will help you have a more personal and personalized experience of and relationship with sacred mystery. So here it is, and this is, I'm quoting Joan Chittister now. Try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring happiness to you in the future. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring you happiness in the future.
1: I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring you happiness in
0: the future. Jennifer said if we said that to the sky, we'd stop Mm -hmm. polluting. If we said it when we see ponds and lakes and streams, we would stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we said it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them. And if we said it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity around us. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day we would change. She must live somewhere else. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think we look positive in a clear hot June day here. But we so all fall for the lie that the way we do it is the right way. And uh, rather than sing it, there's a much larger story that each of us is a part of. And if we're going to rebuild the society in which we live, we're going to have to rebuild ourselves. And I think having an, living an understanding of this cosmic egg is one way to do this. Now, you notice that there are three containers of meaning and healthy people and healthy religions embrace all three. Unhealthy people and unhealthy religion, or maybe I should say unwise and unskillful people and religions usually honor only one level. And in doing it, ironically, they dishonor that very level. Now, the first story you see, the first level is my story the one that says, this is me, this is, this is who I am. I think probably no part of my teaching has, had, has given some people so much trouble as when occasionally I stand and say, this is not me sitting here. Mm,
1: this is an illusion or a projection. Well, <laughs> it's a role I play. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I hope I play it with integrity and effectively, but it's not me, it's not my identity.
1: You do. Play it with integrity.
0: You know, one of the gifts that we... Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. One one of the gifts that we have living in this present age is that we have the luxury of fabricating these stories about who we are. In earlier times, people were so focused just on surviving that they didn't have time to go off and find themselves. Actually, we don't find ourselves. We create ourselves. Mm -hmm. But this first container, this is me container, is made up of all the things we think make us special. And many people in our culture live their entire lives at this level. They are what they've done or what's been done to them. They are what they have or what's been taken away from them. They're easily offended. They're fearful. They're often pretentious. Watch three hours of commercial television and you will see this arena acted out. In this entertainment arena, Trivia and drivel are driven to the the level of art form. People sometimes pour tons of resources and energy into maintaining this container of meaning. It's futile, of course. It won't last. And when Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you must be willing to give it up. He was talking about a willingness to move beyond this container of meaning. Daily spiritual practice ought to be aimed at precisely this goal. I am who I am in God, no more, no less. The second container called our story has to do with the tribe that we're a part of. Now, most of us are members of several tribes. We're a member of our family, of our state, our nation, our region of the country, our political party, our religious affiliation. And it's from this container that we draw our myths and our symbols. It's from this container that patriotism comes from. And patriotism is very, very, very different than nationalism. They're two different things. Now, if a person never contacts the third level, a person's gods come from the level of our story people who see God and country together are stuck at this level. They don't see that this way of thinking is both idolatry and it's heresy. It was Oscar Wilde who said, a thing is not necessarily true just because someone dies for it. Now, almost all of human history has been driven by the loyalties that people have to this level of meaning. And and you might notice that what one tribe wants to be true for itself, it often doesn't want to be true for another tribe. Governments and religions can begin to think that if something furthers their agenda, then it's legal, it's moral. If something opposes it, it's illegal and immoral. Now, I'd love to illustrate that with our own government, but you can't talk about that in church. Hmm. So let's talk about the church. <laughs> you can talk about the church in church.
1: church and church, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: A few years ago, um, the Roman Catholic Church was caught in a scandal of protecting pedophile priests. There's massive sexual abuse, massive sexual abuse. And instead of cooperating with the legal system and legitimate investigations. They blocked them in every way that they could. There was a Cardinal here in the United States by the name of Bernard Law of Boston, Mm -hmm. who was proven guilty of criminal acts by protecting, lying about, and sheltering guilty priests. The law of this country would require that he be arrested, charged, Tried, and if convicted, put in jail. Instead, the church moved him to Rome, where by virtue of being out of the country, he would never be required to testify under oath. Hmm. It's not true just for Catholics. Some would say that the same sort of dynamic is playing out right now in the United Methodist Church. There's a great conflict, has been a great conflict for a number of years in the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church. Over the language in the book of Discipline that says that we do not see that homosexual behavior is consistent with Christian doctrine or something like that. And at General Conference a couple of years ago, it was thought that we were on the verge of changing that. But it didn't happen. And there was a big upset about that. And it appears that we are going to experience yet another division of the body of Christ. Over something that, to me seems so apparently wrong to continue to make discriminations and exclusions on the basis of sexual orientation, I heard a stand up comedian I think I told you about this uh, say that pretty soon they're going to discover how bad raw sugar really is for people,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You did tell me about this.
0: <laughs> yeah. and, and that there will come a time when people will look back on the consumption of raw sugar as criminal. And, and they will say, do you remember we used to even have trucks that drove around neighborhoods playing music that would track kids out into the street to sell them raw That's sugar that, yeah. in the form of <laughs> sweets. I think there's going to come a time. I know it's true for my grandchildren right now. They want nothing really to do with organized religion because of its stance on LGBTQ plus
2: mm-hmm. things.
0: We're going to look back and say, my God, how did we ever think that? How did we ever do that? Hopefully, we're moving more and more in the position of thinking that about owning people, but we still have some de facto Absolutely. kinds of slavery oh, going, definitely. going definitely. on. Oh, definitely.
1: Definitely. It's larger today than it was during the height of the transatlantic slave trade.
0: Shelby Spong wrote, I do not trust evangelicals to be honest when their beliefs are at risk. Nor do I expect them to act in Christ-like ways. My point is that many, many people are more interested in a belonging system than they are in search of the sacred. And one way or another, they lose their lives in the process. Now, please don't misunderstand. We need a belonging system. I, I think Psychologically and spiritually, people are dying for a loss of a sense of belonging. Holly and I were just talking a minute ago about how we miss the gatherings that used to happen right here. The, the belonging here m- mattered so much. And I certainly benefit from the technology that allowed us to bring Michael Morwood here, that will allow us to bring uh, Jackie Lewis here, that allows us to have these zoom meetings with people thousands of miles away, but it has a dark side. It separates us from physical contact with each other. And because of it, we, we don't need to come together in the ways that we do. I mean, we have a psychological need, but we can work around that. And then there is the last one, the bigger container that contains the other two called the story. And that is simply what is. And I'm repeating myself, but you remember that all spiritual work can be wrapped up in the sentence that we need to relate to what is in an open, honest, nonjudgmental manner. Paying attention, developing the resources, developing the the empowerment that comes from that. Uh, To be with it as it is, not how we want it to be. By the way, I think this is what it means to be meek. All healthy religion and religious practice honors all three of these levels of being. The third level embraces the first two. It holds them together in a sacred and mythological way. The three great monotheistic religions make this third level personal as well. I'm going to quote Rohr. Without the great stories that free us from the tyranny and idolatry of the first two stories... We remain trapped in small cultural and private worlds. Without the great patterns that are always true, we get lost in choosing between tiny patterns. True transcendence frees us from the tyranny of the I am and the idolatry of the we are. But if all three are taken seriously, we have a full life, fully human and fully divine." Now, another way of talking about the goal of the spiritual work that will sustain us during this time of pandemic and coming to terms with systemic racism is that we make this commitment to our identity as growing in freedom and, and, and love for ourselves and for other people. That we take 100% responsibility for who we are and how we relate to other people. Now, if we're trapped in either of those first two containers, we're not moving in that direction. Not only that, but we're caught in some sort of idolatry. Um, I think that people who are blind to how my story and our story got fabricated, that is, made up, I think those people become fundamentalist in one way or another. Liberals get trapped in that first dome of meaning called my story. Uh, Conservatives have a tendency to get trapped in our story, tribal, tribal meaning. And both conservatives and liberals avoid, I dare say they fear, surrendering to the third level of meaning because if we surrender to that third level of meaning, we have to die over and over and over again to our constructed reality and to the things that we are so damn sure about. The person who does live, can I say damn in church?
1: You just did. Okay. So yes.
0: <laughs> but it's, 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 it's clear that this is the problem of our time. That people are so certain just like I am right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm, so <laughs> I'm so certain that this is true. <laughs>
0: yeah. But look, the person who embraces, as we would put it in Texas, the whole enchilada here, it's the saint, it's the prophet, it's the seer, it's the mystic, it's Jesus, it's what he was able to do when he came out of that experience. It's a parable, you know. He came out of that experience in the desert, having been faced those temptations and he, he said to those who became his followers, look, I have had this experience where I know who I am. I am who I am in God mm-hmm. and so are you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if we live that identity, we can change the world. It's the person Jesus described as meek. And I think the saving of the world is going to be led by these people. That is to say, the meek shall inherit the earth.
1: One of the things that Michael Morwood spoke to so eloquently the other night was the need to take um, the story outside of the church. I think so often the church believes it is the story when in fact it's just another sort of layer of story.
0: The church exists at the, our story level. That's
1: right, and so in many ways, we also have to take this language much broader than God language, much broader than church language, and just understand that talking about God and sacred mystery is a metaphor for trying to relate to the story. And you know, this, of course, our individual self is important. Of course, my story, knowing who I am and on this earth is important. But so is what um, Jesuit priests, again, He, too, tried to fit the story inside of the church as opposed to the church inside of the story, but he had a lot of wisdom, too. He says um, we need to develop what we call our cosmic sense. He says, I give the name of cosmic sense to the more or less confused affinity that binds us psychologically to the all which envelops us. The existence of this feeling is indubitable, and apparently as old as the beginning of thought. The cosmic sense must have been born as soon as man found himself facing the forest, the sea, and the stars. Part of the reason it's so difficult to transcribe this cosmic sense, this greater sense of belonging is because of the often ineffable experience of it. That's why we put God language around it because it's so hard to describe. Even though it's always present, always enveloping. We cannot permanently stay in it because then we lose a sense of self. We lose the ability to even make decisions like, should I go left or should I go right here? The other day, I came across this short kind of wondrous video of a whale moving in a spiral pattern. It's called bubble net feeding, making the sounds, and we'll click on it in a second, that only a whale can make as she circled and netted for her food. The feeling washed over me so profoundly, even if only momentarily, I felt in me the sound of the whale. It fit so perfectly for kind of the sound I longed to make, and it was a beautiful feeling I couldn't name, but I felt a certain kinship with the whale. You can click on that link, build above the...
0: Okie doke.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe it won't work. We can put it in a... It didn't take us off. That's okay. Oh, there we go. Well, forget it. <laughs> we knew we might possibly have this problem. We had this,
0: we had this problem.
1: Yeah, it's okay. So what I what I, what it is for me is that the sound of the whale has both a melancholic as well as this kind of symphonic resonant sound. And when I let that sort of wash over me, I felt I felt belonging. I think this split between ourselves and the natural world is a false split. We are of the natural world. We are experiencing it. Any view of an out there God perpetuates that split. Any view that I am not the whale perpetuates the split between me and it. So Bill talked last week a bit about worldview and nearly everything in our dominant American worldview supports individualism and consumerism over kinship. We are so focused on our personal happiness. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was brilliant in many respects, a transcendentalist who was sometimes called America's philosopher, supported that through the individual transformation could occur. In fact, he so believed in the individual's ability to think and reason him or herself into a higher place of being that he believed us to be the salvation of the world. On the one hand, he's on to something. We do have this capacity for moral, spiritual, and psychological development, and we can deeply impact the world around us. But what it loses sight of is our belonging and our place in that world, and it places individual transformation above instead of alongside everything and everyone else's. So, in other words, to focus too much on the individual is not meek at all. I love what Sally McFaig says in her book, The Body of God. The world is our meeting place with God. As the body of God, it is wondrously, awesomely, divinely mysterious. What could it mean to understand sin as the refusal to share the basic necessities of survival with other bodies. When um, I recently listened to Braiding Sweetgrass, um, it's, Bill, you read it. um, I loved Robin Wall Kimmerer's definition of indigenous. She says, and her mourning is that we've lost a sense of indigenousness to where we are. And her definition of indigenous is to care about the healing of all beings. All beings. Full stop. In other words, our personal well-being depends on our um, interaction or relationship to everything else. So these models of development need to extend beyond personal well-being and transformation into social, ecological, and cosmological belonging. We're citizens of an entire planetary system, which is overwhelming and immense. And to know this, To really know this renders us meek or humble. And the beautiful thing is that the more we orient ourselves to this sort of cosmic belonging, to all that is, the more at home we begin to feel in our bodies like we actually belong here.
0: I love that definition of sin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also equally like that definition of indigenous. When we begin to care about the healing of all things.
0: So one of the questions that came up or comes up, it came up with Wood and it comes up when we talk about um, evolutionary cosmology and there not being a God out there. Um, people seem to fear the loss of, quote, a personal God. Mm-hmm. This is very personal.
1: To me it is.
0: Yeah, well it is very personal. Yeah. And... Um, I want to come back and address this more completely. Maybe I think we'll have an opportunity about three Beatitudes now from, for, for doing this about the personal nature of God. Even when we get into next week and we talk about what does it mean to have a hunger
2: mm-hmm.
0: for the sacred.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one of the reasons that ritual is so important. And one of the reasons that art, in its many forms, in um, icons, in paintings, in dance, in music, um, is that these ritualizations and embracing the, the symbolic and the metaphor are ways that we can have a personal relationship with the mm-hmm. sacred It's one of the reasons that I personally am attracted to icons. Mm. But it's also one of the reasons that I think rituals are important, that prayer is important in the way that Michael Morwood is thinking about prayer here. And, and, you know, I know that when my senses are attuned to it, I see God everywhere. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Last night, um, we we have two red-eyed tree frogs. And my, I have a son who is, loves frogs and has all this research on frogs and we have to feed the frogs crickets. And yesterday we got a new batch of crickets and they were singing. The crickets were just chirping, chirping, chirping and we've never had that in our cricket cage but this, the crickets were chirping as my kids fell asleep and it was just this beautiful sense of like...
0: And then you fed them to the frogs. And
1: we fed them to the frogs. You and then the frogs chirped. <laughs>
0: Do, do the, you have the frogs in a cage?
1: Yes. Oh, no, they just run around the house. Well, built, I didn't. Of course, yeah.
0: And where did you get them?
1: Um, there's a young man south of here who um, kind of raises red-eyed tree frogs. There's two, there's many varieties of red-eyed tree frogs. There's one that's actually going extinct. You can't all, You can't buy those, but there's a more common variety, and that's the one that we have two of. I have some misgivings about having frogs in a cage, but I also know that my child has this deep appreciation for for those little beings. So it's a neat experience.
0: So if you wonder where God is in all of this, I'll give you some answers.
2: Hmm.
0: Tentative, provisional (laughs) answers. And I start with a story about this little boy who um, went to God one day and said, God, what is a million years to you And God said to the little boy, a million years to me is like one of your seconds. And the boy went on, well, what's a million dollars to you? And God said, a million dollars to me is like one of your pennies. And the boy thought about this for a moment and said to God, could I have one of your pennies? Mm -hmm. And God said, sure, just a second. So there is a quality call for in spiritual work called patience. Being meek does not mean being a pushover. It means quietly persevering in the face of brute rage. It is a staunch refusal to lie down in submission or to rise up in violence before the forces that oppress you. What is called for in spiritual practice is patience and perseverance, and that's meekness. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Patience and perseverance is like water on a rock. In any given moment, it seems inconsequential. But over time, it can create something like the Grand Canyon. Meekness also means being nonviolent. Another one of the Beatitudes speaks more completely about this. I'm going to leave that to a later time, but... One example from our own time I would offer is the nonviolent stance taken by Rosa Parks when she refused to get up and give her seat to a white person in Montgomery in December of 1955. That's the year I graduated from high school. It was a very influential event for me. For over a year after that, Black citizens of Montgomery refused to ride on a segregated bus system. They walked thousands of miles, enduring not only inconvenience, but also threats and taunts and bombings. The demonstrators were set upon by dogs and fire hoses. Many were mercilessly beaten, and a number were killed, including children. But in the end, they inherited their land, partially And all of it was sparked by a meek gesture of a tired but determined Christian lady who said, no more. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know what meekness looks like, look at Jesus. He was born in a cave. He was asked, when he was asked about paying taxes, he had to borrow money to make his point. He was homeless. He let other people set the agenda. He rarely healed anyone unless he was asked. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a perfect symbol for one who rejected weapons and armies. And on the night before he was executed, he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. I can't imagine our president or any Caesar, ancient or modern, doing that. Mm. Meekness means seeking to live God's will and not our own and not our tribes.
1: So this model of development that I wanna talk about, um, hopefully we have time for it, is, is about trying to place ourselves in that context of, um, of greater belonging. And I believe that part of this is finding ourselves against a backdrop of such immensities Noting that the universe is so grand, these systems are bigger than us, we are so small. But this is both achingly beautiful because how can something so small feel so big about something, feel such passion? And it's also terrifyingly insignificant. Does our passion, does our care even matter? David Abram wrote in The Spell The Sensuous, and I've read this in here before, but I just love this quote. Our bodies have formed themselves in delicate reciprocity with the manifold textures, sounds, and shapes of an animate earth. Our eyes have evolved in subtle interaction with other eyes, as our ears are attuned by their very structure to the howling of the wolves and the honking geese. To shut ourselves off from these other voices, to continue by our lifestyles to condemn, these other sensibilities to the oblivion of extinction, is to rob our own sense of their integrity and to rob our minds of their coherence. We are only human in contact and conviviality with what is not human. So the model I want to introduce is one that's been widely used by medical professionals and psychologists. It's called the biopsychosocial model of disease and development. I learned it when I was in graduate school. And it essentially says that the, the individual has, we, when, when understanding the individual, we have to take in three components. Their biological makeup, genetic predispositions, gender, race, etc. Their psychological makeup, this is where Erikson, Piaget, where we can uh, come in and where we can understand trauma. And their social development, which is attachment. How did they attach to their caregivers? What was their environment like? Were they fed regularly, etc.? Morality and what happens in the environment. There's lots of other things that we've learned feed into this model. But what I want to do is I, I want to take this model and I say, yes, this is important to the understanding of the individual. All of these things intersect to create the one. Go ahead. But I think we have to place our individual development with a permeable membrane. So if you notice, like what I've done is i put a, a, a dotted line around the individual, a dotted line around that sort of external circle. Because there isn't, it's not a one-way thing where, where things are only coming in and impacting the individual. It's a two-way where things that the individual is doing is impacting the outer world. You can keep clicking, Bill, or you can hand it to me. Can I see the remote? Sure. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and we have to place ourselves into an ecological reality, into the e- ecology of the earth, the ecology of everything that is surrounding us. In addition to that, we have to have what, what Terre de Chardin refers back to as the cosmic sense. Without this, without this understanding that these three things are constantly intersecting, our individual identity, our ecological inclusion, and our cosmological origins, then we, we let go of something being fundamentally human. We let go of what it can be to be human if we do not connect ourselves at all three layers of existence. And that's kind of what I'm looking for, is, is, is a, as a model that helps us to understand all three of those layers. Um, I don't think we have time for me to finish this piece, but... I,
0: I don't think the world will come to an end if we take time. <laughs> it.
1: I might not. So, you know, some of this, I think, is uh, about learning to converse with our reality. And converse in the dictionary means to keep company with, to live among, or to become familiar. We already talked to, you know, our dogs Right. So how is talking to you being in conversation with the caterpillar, the whale, the butterfly, any different than talking to God? It just it's how is talking to you any different than talking to God? This is a way that we become familiar with our surroundings. And in as much as we keep talking to an out there God, we keep it all at arm's length. I really believe that. There's a great
0: story in the Hebrew scriptures about an encounter between Isaac and Jacob, mm-hmm. and um, they they have Jacob was a scoundrel and and they they they, they end up um, being frightened of each other and f- fearing for their lives at least Jacob was and they they finally embrace um, and they lock. And the Hebrew has it in a very beautiful way where Jacob looks at his brother and says, I see your face and you look like God to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see your face. How,
0: how do we encounter yeah. the sacred?
1: To me, this is the autonomous and embedded nature of reality. It already is there. This is true at every single le- level of a being. And as we titled this talk, we cannot buy this reality, Mm-mm. but we can become it.
0: I I, I just want to say one other thing um, before we're done. The word meek in the scripture is not a singular word. It's plural. Mm. Um, We think of a meek person as someone who's isolated or wants to be, someone who's marginalized and left alone. The way Jesus uses the word suggests that there's some sense of community or belonging uh, that belongs to the meek. And w- w- that, let me put that another way. When Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth, he's not saying uh, each individual is going to get a slice of the pie. He's talking about a new family being born, about a new community being created, what Amiriku calls a community uh, of empowerment. Um, when people are at the my, my story or our story level, there's always, got, there's always an agenda competing and, and comparing. We beat or get beaten. We distinguish and grab. And the meek don't live like that. Jesus was meek in this way. He, he never made distinctions that divided. He never squashed one person down to put somebody else on the top. Meekness is patience. Patience like water on a rock. There is a story that comes from Buddhism about a pilgrim who was seeking enlightenment. And he asked his teacher, how long it would take me to become enlightened? And his teacher said, 10 years. And the man was stunned by this. And he said, but what if I work really, really hard? And the teacher said, oh, well, in that case, it'll take you 20. Meekness is patience in the face of enemies and oppositions. In the face of wrongness, it's nonviolent persistence. It is that which empowers us to live in the only world that really matters. The way this comes to us, this living in the kingdom of God right here, right now, is that we do our work to be who we are, truly are, no more, no less. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or perhaps more in line with our ability to hear, You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you'll find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step. Holly, I love you and thank you for doing this with me. Thank you.
1: Love you too. Bye, (laughs) y'all.